and I'm Jamie. Welcome to Driver Picks the Podcast. Where I pick the podcast. And I shut my cake hole. And today we will be discussing the 18th episode of season four of Supernatural titled The Monster at the End of This Book. Jamie, what did you think? Okay, so I think we need to start by addressing the title. Okay. I think first and foremost. Absolutely. I have a copy of The Monster at the End of This Book. Jamie did bring the recommended reading to today's podcast. (laughs) Beth said that she had never read this book, so I watched the end, the last bit of the episode with her because Uh she was still watching it when I got here today. And then I read her The Monster at the End of This Book, starring lovable, furry, old Grover. And it was a delight. It's a delightful book. If you've never read it before, it's not a hard read. It is for children. (laughs) It's not strenuous. It's not strenuous. It's very fun. It was, not going to lie, my favourite book growing up as a kid. Like, Mm -hmm. like, I'm talking about, like, from three years old, this was my favourite book. Also helped that my dad did all the voices for me, and (laughs) he was great. And I love, which I don't think any Supernatural podcaster has ever said. (laughs) That is some unrelatable content, Jamie. No wonder you don't like this show. You just can't relate to the Blobos. Uh (laughs) If you haven't read the book, check it out. It's fun. It is quite good for a children's story. I I think it holds up really, really well. But, sorry, my actual point related (laughs) to this book and how it relates to this episode is I am going to make a prediction. Oh. That relates specifically to this book. Okay. And then how that applies to Chuck. Okay. Bearing in mind, you do kind of know a bit about Chuck. Maybe we should preface. Okay, so I do know that Chuck is gone. Like, I do remember being on Tumblr and seeing, like, the reveal that Chuck is gone. Mm -hmm. I know that. Like, I've... This is something, if you listen to our very first episode ever, the introduction episode Mm -hmm. we did, that is one of the things that I list off as something I know. And you've joked about it a couple of times up to this point. But just in case anyone's missed it, or this is the first episode you're listening to, while Jamie hasn't seen the vast majority of Supernatural beyond this point, there were a couple of things that she knew through osmosis from being on the internet and just generally knowing me as a person. From being on the Supernatural hell site. Yeah, exactly. Affectionate. Chuck is God is one of those things that I knew going into watching this at all. Like, I'd seen her on Tumblr. I'd, I've been on Tumblr for many years. I've been friends with Bethany for many years. Like, mm-hmm. I knew Chuck was God. But I don't know how Chuck being God plays into this storyline because I have a feeling that Chuck as God is not revealed or confirmed until later on i was actually going to talk to you about this in this episode so i don't know do you want to get into that now do you want to make your theory first maybe talk about this now and then i'll make my theory because then like i can tie it back in okay sure so chuck being god yes obviously not explicitly stated in this episode however we do get some hilarious lines in retrospect this episode sort of implies that chuck isn't god but that Chuck is a mouthpiece for God. Yes. So and so this is how the angels know what Chuck, like what Chuck wants. Well, I mean, Chuck is God. But this is how the angels know what God wants because... So Chuck is a prophet. Yes. Now, that he is not the only prophet we get in the course of Supernatural. We do have a few other characters who are prophets. So he is certainly not a standalone. No. However, there was a couple of lines in this episode that people focused on and... There are a couple of things from later appearances of Chuck, particularly for anyone who has seen Supernatural towards the end of season five. You will know the scene that I'm talking about, which people really took as a, oh, maybe Chuck is God. And it was actually just fanon. 
It was a fandom theory. And it was not something that they ever addressed until way later when he crops back up in very late seasons. Yeah. So it was actually a fandom headcanon for like years before it was ever confirmed in the show. So when it was, it was a huge deal because this was something that people have been talking about forever. And obviously at the time was something that maybe they weren't planning on or something that they were just going to allude to. They never thought that they were going to get as many seasons as they did. So it was, I don't think it was planned that they were ever going to explicitly say, hey, Chuck is God and also blah, blah, blah. But this is like, yeah. So from this point on, it was a really big fanon theory that Chuck was God. It was never explicit in, you know, in this episode or in the next few appearances we get of him. But prophets, prophets specifically are something that we get more of throughout the series and also... The concept that potentially at this point, Chuck, the like person, there is a theory that potentially he did, he was just a normal prophet who was then possessed by or like taken over by God at some point. And we'll talk about this more. A bit like angelic possession. Yeah. God. (laughs) Yeah. Or either that or maybe God like killed off whoever Chuck was and then just took his form kind of thing. There's a little bit of debate about it. There's a lot of really interesting different takes that I've seen online. And we'll talk about it as we go. But seeing as you already know the big reveal, I don't mind telling you this stuff now. I think it's only going to contribute to the conversation. Relating to that then, just one question before I launch into my theory. Uh Uh-huh. Do we get confirmation that all prophets have archangel protection? By the time we are getting another prophet, the structure of heaven is very different. So I don't think that that is the case. Okay. Like, moving forward, like, at this point in time, there's an archangel free to protect a prophet. By the time we're getting another one, some shit has gone down. And from memory, it has been a few years since I watched that season, but from memory, I don't think that there is actually an archangel that's available to be tied to a prophet in the same way. Like, they've got... Either they've got more shit to do, or, yeah, they're just otherwise unavailable. They're an endangered species. Well, yeah. You can kind of think about it that way. Like, there is a shake-up in the structure of heaven that happens throughout the series that prevents them from being available at, at like, the drop of a hat to protect a, a prophet. That's right. That doesn't really give me more information one way or the other, then. All I wanted to know is... Because if it's unique that Chuck gets Archangel protection, Mm -hmm. that could be a sign that they were intending for him to be God. Early, early on. Early, early on. I think that there's proof, like, honestly, there's a reading that they did intend that. Through the Kripke era, there is a a reading that they did intend that. And then, obviously, they got more seasons than they thought, and they just brought him back because they could. Okay. But my theory is, specifically relating to Chuck's final dream, Mm -hmm. at the end of the episode... The one that, is it Zachariah? Yes. Stops him from sharing with Sam and Dean. And I think his dream is related to how he is the villain. He sees what he is going to do. He sees what's going to happen. And that relates to this book. Because <laughs> this entire book, Grover, the narrator, spends the entire time terrified of the monster at the end of the book. Uh-huh. The monster at the end of the book is then revealed to be Grover. Yeah. The person narrating the book. So here's the funny thing. Usually when we come across an episode like this one, where it's like, oh my God, the insane foreshadowing. Yeah. 
you don't understand the foreshadowing because you don't know what fucking happens. However, this episode is a bit different. I understand some of the foreshadowing. You understand enough of the foreshadowing that we can kind of talk about it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I like, I love that theory. Like, the fact that we have God, who is literally self-inserting narrating <laughs> this story. Yeah, like, Grover is, like, you know, trying with all his might to stop the reader yes. from turning the page. Which is exactly what's happening in this episode. Like, yeah. every chance they get to contradict what the narrative says, they are trying to contradict what the narrative says. Mm-hmm. And no matter what happens, the narrative continues. Yes. Oh, God, I have some points to make on this. So this episode is a really, really interesting take on fate. Mm-hmm. And that whole concept of, like, once your fate is decided, it doesn't matter what you do to try to subvert it, you will always end up on that same trajectory. Like, it doesn't matter. It's like the opposite of free will. Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't matter that they chose a different motel because it was the same motel. It doesn't matter that, you know, Dean was going to park the car so that he didn't drive around it all day. Him going to do that is what caused him to get hit by the minivan because the car was getting robbed because he parked it. All of these things, it doesn't matter what they do to circumvent. Like, Dean orders the tofu burger, but they still give him the bacon cheeseburger. Like, them desperately trying not to have a fight just ends up in them having a passive-aggressive argument. And so it doesn't matter what they try. In fact, them trying to subvert the narrative is what leads them to fulfilling the narrative. Yes, exactly. Except for one point, and that point is Cass. Through the series, and we will talk about this, Cass is always the one thing that the narrative cannot control. Chuck can never predict Cass, ever. Literally the only point that Chuck is surprised in this entire episode, once he like knows what's going on, is when Dean shows up after talking to Cass and Chuck says, you're not supposed to be here. This is not the way this goes. The only reason Dean is there is because of Cass. And the only reason that that doesn't go down exactly the way that Chuck thought. It's because Cass isn't following orders. It's because because Cass breaks ranks. Yeah. And he gives Dean the information that he's not supposed to. And he is subverting the narrative. He is the only character where this is ever a thing. Every time we get a subversion of the narrative, it always comes down to Cass being the pivot, whether he releases information he's not supposed to, where he makes a choice that they wouldn't have expected because it's every time he breaks rank. And angels are not supposed to do that. Angels are not supposed to have emotion. Angels are not supposed to have moments where they say, for the first time, I feel. Angels are not supposed to find loopholes to exploit holy prophecies and then tell their special little blobo (laughs) about the loophole just so they understand why he can't help. You know, just for absolute clarity. Yeah. Sort of tangentially related. Mm Mm-hmm. I think, okay, so we've talked a bit about, like, colour significance and, like, that, how that sort of ties into, like, especially, like, Lazarus Rising. And I would like to create a new argument. Not specifically with you, just generally. (laughs) I don't think blue represents heaven. Okay. I think blue represents Cass and white represents heaven. Okay. I love this. I I agree with the blue. Explain to me about the white. In this episode, we see Dean pray to Cass, right? Which is huge in and of itself. Which is huge in and of itself. We will talk about that later. He prays to Cass in front of a bright blue fucking soda machine. Yeah. All of the outside lighting 
is red uh-huh. and then Cass appears and suddenly there is white light. Mm. It's like the red light gets softened because there is white, white light, light present. There. Yeah. For me, I see it as sort of like the white light is heaven. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Cass is of heaven and white light is attached to Cass. Mm-hmm. And that's why when Cass appears, we suddenly see more white light. Yeah. But it is significant that we don't see it before Cass appears. Mm-hmm. We see the blue light because Dean is not praying to, to heaven. heaven. Dean is praying to Cass. Cass. Yeah. It's explicit and exclusive. Like, he is not just praying willingly. He's not praying to Zachariah. He is specifically praying He's... to Cass. Like, yeah. you want, yes, you're 100% correct. And actually, the progression of Dean's prayers is another thing that we are going to talk about as we go through the series. Yeah. Because the way that he starts off, like, in this episode, his prayer is so, like, loose and willy-nilly. Like, I'm praying, okay? Like, you know. It's sort of begrudging. It's like, I need your help, so please fucking show up. Like, I guess this is the only way that I can possibly get you to show up. Mm -hmm. As we go through the series, the way that Dean prays becomes so different. And almost exclusively, he doesn't pray to heaven. He prays to Cass. And so the way that his prayers shift... And, like, the fact that he is still praying to Cass, it's it's just so interesting. I had another point in my brain about colour significance. Oh, okay. When they do the shot of Cass, he's uh-huh. got red light over one shoulder and white light on the other. Uh-huh. Heaven and hell are on either of his shoulders. Uh-huh. And he doesn't lean towards either of them. He steps forward into the blue light towards Dean. Mm-hmm. He's finding himself separate from heaven, heaven and, and hell. hell. See, you get it. <laughs> And this is why I am leaning more towards of, like, blue light is not representative of heaven. Mm-hmm. Blue light is representative of, of Cass. Yes. And then white light mm-hmm. is heaven. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because I don't think we've also ever seen any of the other angels be lit with blue light. Of the other angels we've seen so far, they're pretty much exclusively dressed in, like, black and white, except for Anna. But Anna's a little different because she lives so long as a human. Yeah. But Cass has the blue tie. He has that blue inherently associated with him. Like, you see the beige or tan trench coat. You see the suit, the the blue tie. That's a Cass cosplay. I don't care if you're just some random business person going to work on a Tuesday. That's Cass cosplay. (laughs) So I 100% agree with you. I think, like, that blue symbolism, yes, is of Cass specifically. Like, Heaven by association. Yes. But Cass specifically. specifically. And even when you see, like, because every shot we've seen so far where they've used, like, a street light to do, like, a halo, mm-hmm. it's always been white light. It's yeah. not, like, bluish light. It's, mm-hmm. like, white light. It's either warm white light or it's pure white light. It's the same with, like, the wings and that. When we see the wings burnt onto the ground and that, especially, in, like, on the head of a pin. Yeah. It is white light. When their eyes go out. And- it is white light. It is not blue light. White light has been associated with every other angel but Cass. Mm-hmm. You know how for demons we have like the black smoke? Yes. At a certain point, we get angel grace, which is kind of like we've their sort of already essence. seen it. Yeah. But like with Anna when she. It's white light. It is. There is a typically a tinge of blue to it. That is probably like being the tiniest bit nitpicky. Yeah. I would still say that your assessment in general, 100%, I agree. Like, Especially given what we've seen at this point of the series. Oh, yeah. I am obsessed with this take. While we're on it, is there any other lighting or set design or anything else that you want to delve into? Or are you happy with that? 
I think there is other things to talk about with set design, but I just don't think I noticed them, if that makes sense. I think this episode, certainly, if I was to re-watch it, I could pick out more things, but, like, for a first watch through, this is what I really noticed. And, like, this is sort of the the shift that I've had in terms of, like, the symbolism of colour. I know that when we talked about 401, Lazarus Rising, you were very much like, oh, no, blue is heaven, blue is cast. Yeah. And I would argue that blue is cast and heaven is white. And I agree with you. It's just, to be fair, in Lazarus Rising, it was the first episode you had ever seen an angel or anything. So, like, I'm not going to be... And also in that episode in particular, the focus is on blue. And Cass is literally the only angel. So so in in that particular instance, I would say that it's kind of like Cass and Heaven are one. And it's only as we're getting further through the series and we see Cass, like you say, like sort of stepping away from, you know, the righteous path, as it were. We see that shift in like Cass is coming forward as his own blue light separate from the sort of corporation of heaven. And it's also interesting because as it's gone on, we do get more of these like more vibrant blue lights versus the really pale blue that was associated with like Lazarus White Rising. Mm -hmm. It's getting more blue and less white. Yeah. I'm connecting the dots. You're connecting the dots and I am loving it. I love the colour theory. Like, there is a reason that the Destiel emojis are the blue and the green heart. Yeah. Like, it's not that deep. (laughs) I love that this is something that you're observing. Okay, but anyway, we meet Chuck. We do meet Chuck. Who literally says, am I God? And Sam's like, no. (laughs) What I really love about Chuck, and this is why I think this episode is so... First of all, actually, before we get into anything, Rob Benedict. I think he is fantastic. He is hilarious. The energy that he brings to this character. He's delightful. He's giving me Jared Padalecki and Bad Day of Black Rock energy. Mm-hmm. He's giving me Jensen Ackles and Yellow Fever energy. Like He is fantastic. Obviously, comparatively to Jensen and Jared, he's also quite short. Mm-hmm. And I feel like just it does something to my brain to see Sam and Dean loom so large over literal God. Like... <laughs> It just does something to me. But there are so many little things in this episode that are just so fun about the narration from Chuck. I, I'm really interested to hear what things stood out to you. Because I've got I've got a, like sort of a small list of like yeah. Easter eggy bits. And I would like to know your thoughts before I launch into them. I want to just say, first and foremost, Chuck is a poor little meow meow in this episode. <laughs> like... That is, like, the vibe, that is the energy. I, I'm going to say I like it. I, I actually, I don't know, obviously, where they're going with Chuck other than Chuck is God. And I do know there's, like, a Chuck 1 theory, so maybe Chuck just doesn't like good endings. But <laughs> for me, at this point of the show, I like Chuck. And, like, I don't know if, like, the fandom at large likes Chuck, but, like, I like Chuck. I never came across anyone who didn't like him. Yeah. At, like, at this point in the series, obviously. He's, like, a little bit pathetic. He's a little bit, like... But he's, like, I like him. He's a sad little man. Yeah, he's a sad little man writing his stories, like... Sam and Dean are his bulbos. Yeah, literally. It's just so fun. Particularly, there are a couple of lines that are just so fucking crazy, like, with future context. So, the line, there's only one explanation. Obviously, I'm a god. And Sam immediately being like, you're not a god. Like, that's so stupid. What are you talking about? (laughs) Followed by a cruel, cruel, capricious god. It's just so funny, like, knowing the things that 
ends you up know, happening yeah. with this character. But also, he goes on to say, the things I put you through, the physical beatings alone, I killed your father, I burned your mother alive, and then Jess, all for the sake of literary symmetry. Supernatural, when it does meta, like when it sort of kicks down that fourth wall, it really kicks down the fourth wall. It really has fun. And there are so many sort of moments in this episode where they do that in such a fun way. Like, because he goes on to say, like, what about bugs and the ghost ship? Like, horror is one thing, but to be forced to live bad writing, it's just such a fun dig at itself. I want to know who wrote this episode. So I did look it up. I did look it up. And then I want to know who wrote bugs and who wrote Red Sky Morning. Not the same people. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's, that's what I want to know. I want to know... Who they're picking fun Like, who's making fun of who? Who decided in the write-up room, I'm going to choose violence? So, according to IMDb, this episode is credited to Eric Kripke, Julie Siege, and Nancy Baird. Uh, so, Julie Siege was teleplay and story, and Nancy Baird was story. And Eric Kripke, it doesn't specify. So, I'm wondering if that's just because he was showrunner at the time that they've credited him as, as a writer just yeah. in, at large. Because he, on when you go through IMDb, I'm pretty sure his name is on, like, all of them. You know what? I'm kind of really shocked that they gave such an important storyline to writers that I've not heard I didn't of recognize their names. Like... I don't know them. Have they written anything else? Well, was this their first episode of Supernatural? Great question. So, they also did The Real Ghostbusters, which is an episode from season five. So, okay. and that's death. That's another. Actually, Chuck is in that episode, and it's another really meta episode. Like, it's a commentary on the fandom, that episode. But they haven't written anything preceding this. I can't. Fu- like, I'm trying to search them, and I'm really getting fucking nothing. IMDb was not helpful. SuperWiki didn't come. Like, nothing came up when I searched the name next to SuperWiki. So, I'm not sure, and I don't recognize their names. They're certainly not a writer that I have seen a lot of meta about. And if I'm being honest, like, I feel like I thought that this episode was written by someone else. Like, I feel like I thought this episode was written by, like, Ben Edlund or something. The person who wrote Bugs was actually two people. It was Rachel Nave and Bill Coakley, and it's the only episode of Supernatural they ever wrote. Yeah, I didn't think that they did much more. It's safe to assume they're making fun of uh, someone who never wrote again for Supernatural. Mm -hmm. And also the person who wrote Red Sky at Morning, that was their only episode they did. There was someone by the name of Lawrence Andrews. So they're taking a swing at people who no longer work on the stuff. Um, imagine if this episode was written by like Sarah Gamble or something, and then <laughs> they listed out like, oh, imagine a cursed rabbit's foot. Yeah. Like, imagine if like it was like Sarah Gamble's taking swings at Ben Edmund. It's like, it's and, not. It, it's from what we can tell, it's two writers who don't actually write a lot for any. And there are episodes that were notoriously like not taken that well. Which is insane to me that Red Sky Morning is the one that they picked out. Like, I get bugs. Yeah. I understand bugs. <laughs> but, like, Red Sky Morning to me was, like, a fairly... I can't remember, obviously, honestly, yeah. enough. Like, I was not in the fandom when that episode aired. I was, like, ten. But they do have a lot of notes about other writers, though, through this episode. And I'm just going to point out a couple because I think they're really fun. Uh, so we obviously have the pen name being Carver Edlund. So Ben Edlund, Ben Edlund, yep, obviously. We also have the diner that Sam and Dean are in when they're having their little passive-aggressive argument is actually called Kripke's Hollow. That is very fun, and it's very obvious the reason why they're doing it in this episode. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. It makes sense. 
While we're on sort of the topic of commentary on like the reality of fans of Supernatural okay. and on Supernatural as an entity, mm-hmm. I do want to touch on a couple of pieces from the beginning of the episode that yeah. I just think are really funny. So when they're reading, like actually no, when they're at the comic book store, and like by the way, we never find out what case they were on. <laughs> I assume they- that they just never finished that case. Like this like, is not addressed ever. Like. <laughs> Was there a ghost or something? Did I just, like, give up? Or yeah, like... apparently they were just like, you know what, this is more important. And to be fair, I also would be distracted if I found out that there was a series of books about my fucking life. But you think it wouldn't be that urgent. Like, you think they would deal with whatever the fuck they were dealing with and then go and hunt it down. Yeah. Like, no, no. They just completely skipped town on that. And, like, I don't blame them, but also I don't think we ever find out what they were doing. Like, they're clearly, like, halfway through a case. And it just gets sort of tossed to the side. Anyway, when they're talking to the guy from the comic book store, he specifically says, yeah, it didn't sell a lot of copies, more of an underground cult sort of following. Which is a reference to the fact that nobody watched Supernatural. Just hilarious. Like, they're just, they're taking digs at themselves. I do love the title card, which has the, like, oh, yeah. cover art of the books. The cover art gets me. Like, it's just <laughs> so like- funny. It's so unnecessary. It looks like the front of a Chuck Tingle box. Like, like <laughs> I love that whoever was working in props just really went all out on, like, yeah. they basically made, because the scene where Dean is reading them on the bed, there is, like, a, probably a good, at least seven or eight books out. Yeah. And they all have their own covers, <laughs> and they're all obviously episodes from the first season. Like, it's so funny. And him reading, like, Route 666. Oh, this is a bit of a fandom thing. I'm not sure if I'll leave it in the episode, but the moment when Dean says, I'm full frontal here, dude, across the bottom of the screen is the context guest starring Misha Collins. And it's just a really funny timing. (laughs) Anyway, they also make the joke where, you know, it got almost zero circulation. Oh my God, there's actually fans of this show or of this series. And then the line, for fans, they sure do complain a lot. (laughs) It's all of the comments just dragging it like also while we're talking about easter eggs they do literally say the line they do know we're brothers in regards to shipping which is yeah. like that's another thing where they're yeah they're calling out the fandom like they specify like there's dean girls and there's sam girls and then what's a yeah. slash fan and like it's yeah they're call they're calling out something in fandom and I mean, how would you react if you found out that a whole bunch of random strangers were like, wow, I would really love it if you fucked your family member? Like, like no thanks. Mm. I, I do really love, though, when they go to see the publisher and she's talking about how it's an underappreciated series. They never really got the, the attention they deserved. And then she's like, maybe with a bit of good press, we could start publishing again. And Dean says, why would you want to do that? It's such a complete series. What with Dean going to hell at all? And I was just like, the way that aged with the prequel coming out, <laughs> the way the series ended, I just think it's so funny. Like, it's yet another example of Supernatural accidentally being that Apollo meme yeah. with the dodgeball. So while we are talking about the editor, mm-hmm. they do the thing with like the tattoo river, which is like fun and smart and clever, and mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy it. But just, like, imagine if in-universe the Supernatural book series got super-duper popular uh-huh. and then there are just shit-tons of people running around with anti-possession tattoos. Yeah. Like, how effective would that be in lowering demon possession numbers? Like, yes. 
it insane. actually it actually is something they should probably be actively encouraging. Yeah. Like I understand why they don't love the books no. being available to the public. But also it yeah, it's like it's like a public health campaign. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's their only their their own form of a Jamie PSA. Like Yeah. Exactly. And it's so funny because you have all of these people who genuinely know because they make the point of saying to Chuck, like, how do you know all this stuff about demons and that? Like, which means that everything that he's portraying is true and accurate, which makes the concept of him having a book of Hollywood Babylon hilarious, like, objectively. (laughs) But he's telling all these people, like, yeah, like the flickering lights and the sulfur smell and like ring of salt and like all of these things. And yeah, like the most dedicated fans are going out and getting tattoos of this shit. Like, they're genuinely better protected, and it's actually quite a good... Yeah. Yeah. It's actually good byproducts. It's a good side effect. Completely unintended, but very convenient. And actually on that, I do love that we get the line that one day these books will be known as the Winchester Gospel, because it's just like, what the fuck? (laughs) And particularly Cass saying when he meets Chuck, that it's an honour to meet him and that he admires his work. But he looks directly at Dean. I know. He looks... It's so... <laughs> Acting choices by Misha Collins. <laughs> he genuinely just looks directly at Dean. And I think the implication is meant to be that he's looking sort of to the side, but it doesn't look like he's looking to the side at the books. Mm-hmm. It looks like he's looking directly at Dean. Like, that is... That is where it looks like. That's where the sightline goes according yeah. to the way they shot it. Uh-huh. Cass and Dean in this episode, like, I'm going to sidetrack us a little bit. I'm going to talk about Destiel for a sec. I know that you're not, like, seeing it right now. and like, I, I can see it, but I'm not seeing it, you know? Yes, and I fully respect that. But, like, that whole conversation that they have outside the motel when Cass is sort of, like, going out of his way to find the loopholes and stuff, I think it really sort of harkens back to that idea of what Uriel said, which is, you know, Cass has this weakness, he likes you, and we can't have that. And this is why. Because Cass likes him, and he wants Dean to like him back. And so he wants to help him. Although I do think that in this particular scene, it's Dean saying, when you need me... I need you now. If you don't help me now, when you need me, why would I help you? Yeah. I do think that's the thing that gets through to him. But I also think that almost any other angel wouldn't have given a shit. They would be like, well, that's fine because we'll just force you to help it later yeah, anyway. But like, Cass doesn't want to make him do it. And I think that is the key. And we sort of see that in, like, on the head of a pin and bits and pieces as well. And when he says, like, I would give anything not to have you do this. He doesn't want to make Dean do these things. He wants Dean to choose to do these things because he also wants it. And that's such a specific difference between Cass and, like, Basically any other angel that we've seen, excluding maybe Anna. We get a, a quote this episode where they where Lilith literally says to Sam that he's the smart one. Oh god. Which I just want to say that no, he's he's not. <laughs> like like in some ways, yes, he absolutely is. And like I do love the fact that Dean physically confiscates his laptop so he can't do research. No homework, watch them. No porn. homework, watch them. Porn. <laughs> but Sam is 100% not the smart one. People keep on trying to teach Sam lessons and he refuses to learn them. Mm -hmm. Like, all this episode has taught him is that he needs more demon blood to be able to defeat Lilith. Like, that is is all he's taking away from this entire situation. Mm -hmm. This is all he has learned from this whole thing. All he knows is now that 
whatever like level of demon blood he currently has in his system, whatever percentage he's at, <laughs> is not high enough. All yeah. he's learned is that he needs more demon blood. Like mm-hmm. that is it. You cannot tell me that Sam has literally taken anything else from this situation. Like yeah. Sam will learn the lesson he wants to learn. Yeah. Like, the whole episode in Mystery Spot, the trickster is constantly trying to teach him this motherfucking lesson, and do you know what he learns? Fucking nothing! Nothing! Because then we get him doing exactly what the trickster tried to teach him not to do. To the T. Mm-hmm. To the yep. fucking T. He just, he refuses to do what he is told to do. I kind of wonder, like, in... The six months, obviously, that don't actually happen because the trickster reverses it all. Mm-hmm. Does he turn to demon blood in that timeline as well? Do we see him interact with Ruby in that timeline? I don't remember. I don't think we do. But it's not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah. Because, okay, not to go on about this again. No, it's fine. <laughs> you, you know. Please go. <laughs> I know where this is going. Yeah. I know I'm going to struggle. It's okay. fine. <laughs> if the angel, if, like, the trickster is an angel, right? And that was a test. It could have been a test to see if one of the things that he would have turned to would be demon blood. It could be testing to see if in an alternate timeline where he doesn't have Dean, would he turn to Ruby and get start down this path? If the trickster is an angel mm-hmm. and that was a test of Sam, could the thing they were specifically testing be... Would Sam turn to Ruby, to Ruby and Demon Blood to try and yeah. undo what's been done? Yeah. And then that also links into my maybe the angels aren't strong enough to kill Sam thought process of like the reason they just like the trickster undid it all uh-huh. was because he was worried that Sam would be able to work out how to kill an angel and therefore he would be at risk. And so he just, like, undid it all because that was the easiest way to make sure that... To get himself out of the situation. Yeah. That is certainly an interesting take. I am incredibly impressed at how far you've managed to take this theory. I think... What can I say? My middle name is Commit to the Bit. (laughs) So I... We don't have time to unpack all that. Yeah, look... The problem is we've reached a point now yeah. in, in the Angel Demon plot where regardless of trickster stuff, I can't yeah. really not say too much because yeah. obviously we're kind of reaching the crux yeah. of it. But what I will say is I do love where your brain is at in terms of like the complexities and each sort of team having fingers in pies and like everyone trying to achieve their own ends and like the way that they're each sort of the way that everyone is treating Sam. Because it's very different. Everyone on every side is is sort of reacting to Sam differently. Everyone's kind of treating Dean the same. Yeah. Everyone's kind of being like, you're a pain in my ass (laughs) to Dean. And then to Sam, the angels are treating him differently to the way the demons are treating him to the way that Dean is treating him. Mm -hmm. But everyone, Sam, the demons, and the angels are all kind of treating Dean the same. So it is certainly interesting to look at how Sam has relations with each of sort of the three sides of the equation. And then the trickster is a fourth, actually. And yeah, and even the trickster treats Dean kind of the same. He's like, you know what? You're just kind of here. Like, you're not the the point. Which is really funny, considering I think the only person so far that we've seen treat Dean differently is God. (laughs) Is Chuck. It's so interesting. And actually, quickly coming back to your point on the comment of like, well, you were always the smart one. I find that really, really interesting, particularly in the context of this episode. 
because we've talked a lot about how the narrative tried to frame Sam and Dean as these stereotypes of like the brains and the brawn. And we've talked a lot about how Dean sort of is the butt of the joke when it comes to a lot of the, like, intellectual stuff. Which he literally references specific... Vonnegut titles. Yeah. 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 And, and he... this is not the only time. And and it's not even just like a, oh, I've seen that title, I'm going to make a reference to it. It is, I understand the concepts within these words mm-hmm. and I'm using them to help provide context to this scenario so that i can understand the scenario because i understand these books Mm -hmm. and sam is like surprised and then chuck comes back because they're talking to chuck yeah Mm -hmm. chuck comes back with a third different title again and dean knows exactly what he's talking about he recognizes it he understands like and that helps him solidify his understanding of the situation and i just want to very quickly remind us all that the previous episode to this is It's a Terrible Life. And where do we see Dean? In the fucking director of sales and marketing or whatever position because he's a fucking Stanford graduate and he knows his shit. Like, the constant pushing of Dean as kind of a dumbass in the meta-narrative of this show. We are proved time and time again through the actual context of the text that Dean is very smart and capable and well-read but like then the actual dialogue text keeps trying to convince us that he's dumb like everyone kind of pushes this narrative that like sam is the smart one but then again we have mystery spot where the trickster says anyone who has ever said that dean was the dangerous one has never seen you with a pointy object in your hand because this he he's right like that reading on of them is not the absolute truth yeah, I know I know exactly what you're saying. Thoughts. <laughs> I just I don't know how to elaborate on that for you. Yeah. Like and I think actually like another thing that we can probably tie into this as well is another like pressing of Sam of Dean into this particular like narrative box that has been created for him, which is when Sam is trying to convince Dean that Chuck's latest prediction is crap and he's saying like I've seen you bleeding out like you would use duct tape and bar rags before you'd ever use a pink flowered band-aid. And it's like, that is something that is, Sam is deciding for Dean. But also, I think that is inherently wrong. Like, I'm... Mm, yeah. Here's, here's the thing, though. Dean uses a bar rag and duct tape because that is what he has available. available to him. And also, if, if he's bleeding he... out, a band-aid ain't gonna do shit. <laughs> all he has, a, if all he had available to him were pink flower band-aids, he would fucking use the pink flower band-aids. Like, he's not not using something because it's pink and flowery. Like, yeah, exactly. It's the practical application yeah. of the thing. Like, you've just been shot in the gut. A band-aid. What's a band-aid going to do? Because it's not like he says, where would you even get a pink flowery band-aid? Yeah. Like, we, we don't have pink flower band-aids. We don't buy pink flower band-aids. Like, mm-hmm. that, that makes no sense. He says you wouldn't use them. And it's yes. like, Dean would use whatever the fuck he needs to use to get it to yeah. stop. Like... And so I think it kind of comes back to this sort of like really interesting thing where Sam believes the narrative about Dean. And we've kind of touched on this before, but like Sam believes the performance. They're loyal to the idea of each other. Exactly. Sam believes the performance that Dean presents. It is interesting. I know like the other episode or a few episodes ago now, we talked about this idea of like who Dean trusts. And we talked about how at this point, the amount of trust he has in Sam is drastically lowered from where it was at any other point in the series thus far. And I think that this episode really solidifies that as well. I think it also, we need to talk this episode about Sam and Demon Boy. Because 
Chuck has a line, like, sucking blood. Like, you've mm-hmm. got to know that's wrong. Yeah, I didn't and, even write it into the books. I was afraid it might make you look unsympathetic. And Sam sort of tries to present it as, like, no, I'm doing what I need to do to be able to defeat Lilith, mm-hmm. essentially. Like, that's all fine and good and dandy, but if you're just doing what you need to do to be able to defeat Lilith, why aren't you telling Dee? Exactly. If you do not know on some level that this is not the way to go about it, why aren't you telling Dean? Yeah, because Dean still doesn't know this. No. He still doesn't know this. Yeah. And actually, I did want to touch on this as well because it's a really interesting conversation between Sam and Chuck, especially with the knowledge that Chuck is God. Sam literally says, I wish to God I could stop. Which is just fascinating all in of itself. But Chuck makes the comment, maybe the blood makes you feel stronger, more in control. And I do think that that is really interesting because we've talked ad nauseum about how Sam has this need for autonomy and to be in control of his own his own body and his own narrative. And what is really interesting is like in this moment, he's fully aware that he's not in control of his narrative because he's just found out that his narrative is kind of being written for him. Like it's already foretold or whatever. And so that is stripping him of autonomy. He didn't even realize he was being stripped of. but. Also, this concept of, yeah, like, the blood, like, having that power, that's why he is so susceptible to being corrupted with the promise of power, because he wants to feel like he is in control. And so now that he's aware that this more control has been stripped from him, I think it's only going to push him further in the direction of needing more, you know, especially now knowing with Lilith that he's, like, not powerful enough yet or whatever. How are we feeling about maybe that kind of aspect? This is actually something that you predicted forever ago. I don't even remember when. Okay, I'm going to elaborate on it because I keep on just joking, note-coded. But in case you don't know, we have another podcast for a show called Leverage. It's called Thief Stills the Podcast. And basically, Leverage is my comfort show. And it features a character named Nate Ford. And essentially, he spends the entire first season drunk. And then he gets sober. And then he gets not sober again. And it's heavily implied that sort of like that lack of control is something that makes him drink even more and like but then the more he drinks the less control he has so it's Mm -hmm. sort of like a spiraling cycle i think that's kind of directly applicable to sam here in terms of like the more demon blood he drinks the more he feels in control but the less in control he actually is less in control he actually is and it's like sam is nate coded which is yeah i do think that's a really interesting assessment i also want to talk about how sam's whole point is that because Chuck says to him, well, you know, to stop the apocalypse and whatever, isn't that Dean's job? And Sam makes this whole point, which is something that he's brought up a few times, and actually it's something he brought up while he was under the influence of the siren, which he then tried to backtrack and be like, you know, it was just, you know, the siren talking or whatever. And he makes the point that, like, Dean isn't strong enough, like, Dean isn't going to be able to do it. And he's like, so I'm, I'm going to take that on because, you know, he's been looking out for me his entire life. It's now my turn to sort of do that. And my note was that Sam is trying to be Dean-coded, but he's being real John about it. You know, like, that's just the... I don't know how to be more eloquent about it than that, but it's just, like, the vibe that he's giving me. Yeah, no, like, 100%. Like, he's trying to, like, take something off of Dean's plate, and he's trying to be, like, helpful in that, but he's doing it in the wrong way. Yeah. Like, if that makes sense. Like, he's he's going about it in this sort of thing of, like, well, I don't believe that Dean is capable of it, so therefore I'm going to dismiss Dean's abilities at all mm-hmm. and just... And leave him in the dark. 
leave him in the dark and get addicted to demon blood and try to do it myself without any support from him. Mm-hmm. Instead of like actually reaching out and being like, oh, I just want to make sure that you're capable of doing this. I want to make sure that you have all the support you need so that you can do this and you can do what you're meant to do. Mm-hmm. He's sort of like, I'm just going to imply that you're weak and then try to do it without you. Like John coded. John coded. <laughs> Speaking of which, we also get the quote from Lilith where she says, self-sacrifice is the Winchester way. And boy, oh boy, is she not wrong. (laughs) Well, considering uh, Mary's deal in 403 and then John's deal in, what, 201? And then Dean's Dean's deal deal in 222. And Sam's attempted deals through all of season three. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I find it really funny, though, that Sam's the only one so far not being allowed to make a deal. Like, mm. this is the closest he's ever gotten to making a deal with a demon. Mm-hmm. And that is certainly very interesting. And actually, on that, I fucking hate the whole thing about Lilith being like, the deal with me takes more than a kiss. I'm like, why? Why? That No, it doesn't. That I'm is sorry, the dumbest... Like... That is the dumbest law, and it's not cool. I... It, and it's unnecessary. Like, I don't think at any other point in the series do we have another demon who, like, has anything other than, like, a kiss or whatever to seal the deal. It's just so unnecessary. Like, the kiss itself is unnecessary. unnecessary. And then they're like, no, we're going to double down. And I kind mm-hmm. of wish it was, like, less sexualized. I kind of wish that, like, the way to make a deal was, like, a blood pact or something. Yeah. Like, you know, like, you cut the palm and then you, like, shake on it or whatever. Like, Or even if they had to sign something. So, yeah. Like, something that was, like, a formal agreement mm. but, like, wasn't a unnecessary making out session. It's like the rape vibes that are really throwing yeah. me off here. It's like, I understand issue. that they made Lilith an adult for the first time, like, ever, really. Yeah, and even Dean points out, he's like, wait, isn't Lilith a little girl? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? And we were all like, yeah, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, we're going to avoid pedophilia by still making it. But, like, she's a grown woman now, so it's fine. Like, don't yeah. think too hard about that one. Yeah. Though, while we are talking about the deal, I want to just, like, let's explore some of the ways in which Lilith could have welched on that deal. Yeah, go for it. First one, biggest, most obvious for me. She says she will back down from breaking the seals. Mm-hmm. Nothing about I will make sure nobody else breaks any more seals. Nothing about like I will make sure this doesn't happen. No yeah. pledges to be able to like to she actually says, stopping it with any sort of no. Yeah, like she says that she has the same plausible deniability of Cass going, mm, but he is protected by an <laughs> archangel. Like same immediate obvious deniability. Yeah, and then there's all of the shit that she's doing. That she doesn't list in there. In no way does that say like anything about no longer murdering people, about no longer torturing people. She wants yeah. to go back to the good old days with all the baby blood. Yeah, like, exactly. Which this I is... mean, it does wonders for the skin. So I I see why she wants to go back to it. <laughs> so like those those are the two most obvious ones for me. Mm-hmm. But like she also says the only price is like yours, your death and Dean's death. Sam was straight up going to be like, all right, well, I guess you can, like, it's one thing for him to be like, you can kill me. Yeah. But like, you're just going <laughs> what, what to. If, what if they don't manage to kill Dean? And so the deal is incomplete because Dean isn't dead. And now Sam's just dead. And now Sam's just dead. Yeah. What if the opposite happens and they just want Dean dead? And because they've made the deal, they can kill off Dean, but they don't kill off Sam. Yeah. It's, 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 look, it's a messy one. And the thing that stands out to me about this scene and, I, I'm interested to get your take on it. 
is that Lilith says that the reason that she's come to him to make this deal is because she's found out that she's not going to survive the apocalypse. That's her whole, like, thing. And that's very on par with demons in general. Like, we often get that they are very much for their own purpose. Like, yes, technically they're aligned to hell, but you have a lot of demons, like, even, like, Meg and Ruby, who are very much like, well, like, technically I guess I'm on hell's side more than heaven's, but also I'm here for my own purpose. Yeah, like, it's like Lilith being like, I want to raise Lucifer, but she doesn't want to raise Lucifer for any, like... At the risk of her own demise. Yeah, yeah. like, she wants to raise Lucifer because she thinks if she if she gets Lucifer out of his cage... Mm-hmm. She will be rewarded for getting Lucifer out of his cage. Like, she yeah. doesn't want to bring Lucifer back for, for some sort of, like, higher purpose or some sort of, like, moral or righteous bloody, like, Yeah, purpose. she's not like, I feel like he's been falsely imprisoned. Like, like <laughs> she's like, I want to bring Lucifer back because I can get something out of bringing Lucifer back. Like, yeah. She's doing it for um, her own gain, essentially, which is not unsurprising. It's very on par for, for demons. But I did just want to see if you had any thoughts on that. Hey, Betty, no thoughts. All right, cool. No, that's all cool. Look, if you have any other loopholes that you spot in that deal, let me know. Like, because <laughs> I'm sure there are more. Because what Sam says about, like, oh, well, Lilith would have found some way to welch. He's 100% correct. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, I do also love that even though Dean is so furious with Sam about this and he has quite a right to be and like Sam refusing to leave and like all this stuff, like again, Sam not take, Sam doesn't take orders. Yeah. He just does not respond well to them. And I think that Dean was trying to speak to Sam in a way that was like, in one sense, appealing to his like common sense being like, this is not a good idea. But I also think that he was employing a tactic that, if John had used on Dean, would have worked. But it just it was not going to work on Sam for two reasons. One, because Sam just doesn't respond well to that kind of tactic. But two, because Dean isn't John. And they have a very different relationship. But what I do love is that Dean doesn't leave. He's like, you know what? Sam's going to choose to say, then fuck, I guess like I'm going to stay here. Because ultimately... If Sam won't save his goddamn self, I will fucking save it for him. Like, if Sam's not going to save his soul... I'm going to save Sam's soul. Mm-hmm. Like, he's like, I'm not going to leave my brother here to make this choice. I think he choice. just spoke. Do you mean I'm not going to leave my son here? Oh. <laughs> You're so right. It's my apologies. Yes. So I'm not going to leave my child here. Like, I recognize that the decision that they're making is stupid. I'm not going to let them deal with the I see that the, the council has made a decision, but given that it's a stupid-ass decision, I've elected to ignore it. Yeah. Ultimately... Dean is deciding that he's not going to let Sam deal with the fallout by himself. Like, he knows this is a terrible idea, but if Sam is going to face off with Lilith, Dean's going to be there. He's not going to leave to make Sam deal with that by himself, even if he knows it's the dumbest fucking choice. Though I will say again, in this scene, we get Lilith being like, you know I can't use my powers on you or whatever the fuck she says. Sam is very stabbable. (laughs) I'm sorry, but if you want Sam dead... There are far easier ways to kill him than mm-hmm. using, like, your powers don't work. Oh, boo-hoo, whatever. Get over and grab a knife. He literally tells her where the demon blade is. She could just grab the demon blade and stab him. I'm sure it would work on him. Oh, yeah. He's part demon, part human. It's a knife. That works on humans. It's a demon blade. That works on demons. He would be dead. If they wanted him dead, he would be dead. Like, I'm sorry, Lilith. Stop trying to use your fucking magical demon powers on him. Stab him. 
I swear it's not that hard. Jake did it. So completely changing direction from that and flicking us from the end of the episode back to the start of the episode, or closer to the start at least, talking to the editor. Now, we get a couple of little tidbits about Sam and Dean in this scene. We get both of their birthdays. We also get Sam's LSAT score. We get Dean's favourite songs. Like, little bits and pieces that are just, like, fun bits of trivia just generally. But one of the things that she does say is when she's talking about how she wishes real men were this open about their emotions. First of all, Dean's response of real men? We don't have time to unpack all of that. Then she comes back with, no offence, but how often do you cry like that? And I just... It's hilarious considering it's literally yeah every single time in those books that they have cried, they have cried yes, in real life. Exactly. Like that, that is how it works. Exactly. It is literally them. It is their life story. Everything that, that yeah. is in those books happened. You know that whole bit about like your misery is the point? Her line about the best parts being when they're crying. Peak. Hilarious. Love that commentary. But the point that I wanted to make was that in that scene, she talks about specifically season one, episode nine, Home, when Dean calls John asking for help. Sam didn't know that happened. Sam wasn't present for that call. Dean called John in secret, in private, while Sam, like, while they're at the, he said he was going to the bathroom. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that we didn't really get much of a reaction from Sam at that, because this is one of the very rare times in the series where something happens that is quite emotional or vulnerable for one of the boys that the other isn't present for Mm. that the other ever actually finds out about. Hence the entire premise of your fic. Hence the entire premise of my fic, yes. So this moment is really interesting to me because it's actually a revelation at how the audience kind of knows more about the brothers' lives than they do. Because we have this, like, perspective. Like, can you imagine, like, what's another episode we got in season one? Something like Wicked. Like, Sam reading something wicked, I think would do something to his psyche. You know? Like, Dean already knows everything. What about Faith? Yeah. These episodes, if the characters actually got to read them and see them laid out as a narrative, I do think it would do something. Like, they're already on on the brink. (laughs) But it might push them over the edge, you know? And so I do think... So do we think... Because there's what? They get to the end of season three. Like uh, end of season two. Oh no! Se- no yeah. Yes, end of season three. End of season goes to hell. Yeah. So that's where the books are adopting. How many of those books do you think they read? They look like they at least had most of the first season on the bed when Dean is reading them, and we do later find out that unpublished works because we know that Chuck is yeah. still writing. Obviously, yeah. They've all been written. They're just not being published yet. Yeah. So it's not that the the story ended with Dean going to hell. It's just that that's when the publisher went bankrupt and they stopped making them. And those unpublished works we do hear about later as well. Like, Do they ever get published? Kind of. Okay. So these these books... What an interesting answer to a straightforward question. <laughs> so these books do keep cropping up. I actually rewatched an episode from season nine recently where they were... Or season eight, one of the two. Because I've been rewatching Robbie Thompson episodes. Yeah. And they get brought up in, in that episode as well. So they certainly stick around. Like, the joke about Supernatural, the series, doesn't end here. Well, I know there's one where they literally, there's like a Supernatural musical or whatever. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. The, the two kids playing Cass and Dean are literally like a couple. Yeah. Yes. Anywho, uh, we do get 
more references to the book series as we go through the TV series. One of the other things that I did really enjoy about this episode in particular is the way that we get the narration of Sam and Dean, like, walking up to Chuck's door and, like, you know, Sam and Dean trade soulful looks. Then when Dean's in the laundromat and he's reading and he he says to Sam, like, I don't know how this guy's doing it. I can't see your face, but those are definitely your brooding and pensive shoulders. You just thought I was a dick. You know, it's... I, I The really brooding think... and pensive shoulders definitely got... Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm really curious, though, because it's sort of implied that just because Chuck saw it doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's because Chuck wrote it mm. that it's going to happen. Like, And I think it's very... That's the decisiveness. I think it's important. I think it's important to draw a distinction between seeing it and writing it. Yeah. Because it is implied that just because Chuck saw it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Because when he sees whatever he sees at the end, Zachariah is like, you have to write it. Like, yes. Start writing it down. Like, it doesn't become prophecy until it is written down. Yeah. Because then it's like become concrete, I suppose. We even get, like, the interesting line where Chuck says, like, uh, he's talking about bugs and the ghost ship, and he's saying, like, oh, if I knew that you were actually living it, I would have given it another pass. Like, I would have gone back over and refined it. And so it is really interesting to kind of view the series up to this episode through that lens. Yeah. Because this has just been Chuck writing, he thinks, just for himself. Yeah. So from this point forward, you have to assume that when Chuck is writing, he's writing with the knowledge that it's actually happening in mind. So I think it'll be interesting to see, and because I haven't rewatched this part of the series in a while, if the episodes from this point do feel a little bit more polished, a little more refined and sort of cohesive, because now Chuck is applying more thought. He's not just writing whatever Whatever crap goes... Yeah, he's actually thinking about it in the context of Sam and Dean. And... If Sam and Dean were to like try and read more of his work to get an idea of like their story or, or yeah. however whatever, that's just like an interesting, I suppose, concept going through of like I don't know, maybe the pacing of seasons one and three was shit because Chuck didn't really care because he thought he was just writing for an audience of one. As of this point now, if something is in the story, Chuck has made a decision. Yeah, whether he's God at this point or not. It doesn't matter because he clearly still has some sort of impact over what happened. He's writing the Winchester Gospel. So if like, there's something happens that he doesn't include, which makes it really fucking interesting about the Sam Demon Blood not being included. Yeah. Because obviously we know about it. And, and it's, it's also an, like... It's yet another form of censorship, mm-hmm. which we've kind of talked about with like the ghost faces yeah. effect and stuff. But the concept of Chuck censoring things from an audience at large is just so... Okay, so... I don't know if this is maybe too galaxy brain for the supernatural writers, but (laughs) what if the reason why up till this point we hadn't heard anything about the Sam Demon Blood thing is because Chuck had, like, not included it to not Mm. make Sam seem unsympathetic, and then the reason we found out about it, what, like, last episode? Uh, On the head of a pin, so two episodes ago. Two episodes ago is because after this... He's gone back through and revised. Yeah, he has to include it because it comes up in conversation. He has to include it, otherwise it comes up in conversation and it comes out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the reason he hadn't included it up to this point is because he didn't want to make Sam look unsympathetic. So uh-huh. that's why it's sort of like it's kind of there in the background, but it's not actually explicit. Yeah. Like, then he's had to go back and actually revise because what if there's like a certain sort of grace period? 
like for him to because obviously revisions count yeah so what if it's sort of like if he writes it it's like he's writing like two weeks in advance or something like that yeah so he has like a deadline to turn it around yeah so any changes he makes in those first two weeks get applied to the story but anything that he doesn't get in in time it's set in stone like after that point like it doesn't matter what he changes because it's already happened like i would suggest and this is just my take this is not actually like upheld by canon by any means but my take would be that he has until the work is finalized and published so because nothing beyond season three has been published yet because it's all kind of like he's just writing it and he has it on his own computer and the publisher went bankrupt i would suggest that he is able to go back and edit anything of season four to fit yeah the 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 realization that he's now had I would say that he can't go back and change anything that has been physically published and released to the public. Yeah. I mean, you can make edits once books are already published and released, but it makes more sense to me, at least, that any revisions, like, the final point is when it's actually released to the public. Either that, or he might be, like, he might write, like, the end or something, like, and so he has until he's done his final edit and he writes the end at the end or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's something sort of along those lines or like he yeah. marks it as like final copy or whatever. So yeah, like final draft. Or so whether he's published it or not. Once he has left it. Once he has decided it is the final copy, mm-hmm. it is set in stone. But like, yeah. he's got like that leeway of like, while he's making edits. like He can edits. still come back in. Yeah. I love that take for a variety of reasons. We will come back to it in season five but also that is only relevant if it is the writing down of it that makes it true and not the visions themselves are sort of like prophecy or foretold or whatever and like no matter what he writes or doesn't write he can't change it yeah but that would tie really well into my monster at the end of the book chuck saw himself (laughs) become the villain yeah i mean obviously the other options for that final scene is the implications that like Sam becomes the big villain or, like, Dean becomes the big villain. And so, like, that's sort of why he's, like, I've got to warn them so that they can not become the villain. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that it would be more interesting if Chuck was... Saw himself. Saw himself becoming the big villain. The villain. Yeah, it's it's complicated with Chuck. When we get to the end of season five, you'll understand why when it comes to whether or not the, ch- the writers would have at this point in the series have decided that he was God or that he was simply a prophet. We will get to discuss that once we finish the Kripke era. But yes, uh, I love all of those thoughts that you just had in your brain. Beautiful, chef's kiss, obsessed, having a wonderful time. I would like to point out one thing that I do think you're correct about, which is something that you said last episode. You said that regardless of what Cass says and on the head of a pin, Uriel is not the funniest angel in the garrison. Zachariah is the funniest angel in the garrison. And in this episode, he says, Zachariah, you may know me from your work. He's a funny son of a bitch. I <laughs> not gonna lie, at this point he's probably my favourite angel. Like Really? Yeah. I I think he's fucking hilarious. And he obviously great. there might be character choices down the line that make me like Zachariah less or make me like Castiel more. Regardless of like, character choices, he's a very fun character. At this point, like he is like I am having a ball. Like I'm getting so much personality from him. He's so sassy. He's so fun. Like he might be a massive villain at the end of it or he might secretly be a demon or something because we've never actually seen him interact with Cass. So, like, we mm. don't know. But we don't have verification. We don't have verification of actual angelhood. I would say that that's not what they're doing. But we don't have any confirmation of that. So, like, not gonna lie. Like, he's fun. he is fun. And 
like him. I really enjoy Zachariah as a character, at least at this point. Obviously, that might change. And also, I have a feeling that we're going to get more from Cass that will make me like Cass more. But I'm just like, sort of like, at this point, like, Cass is broody. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, Cass is in his emo face yeah, at like, this point. The only thing that is missing is the eyeliner at this point. And the haircut. Like, and the, the haircut. Yeah. yeah. I think I only really have two more points. Do well, you have anything Guess else? what? That's more than me with zero. Okay. So, one is I'm pretty sure that this is the first mention of Dr. Sexy MD. This will come back. Obviously, it's a bit of a parody play on Grey's Anatomy, that kind of show. Yeah. But it will actually probably more so Days of Our Lives, given Jensen's yeah. previous employment. Employment. This is not the last we will get of Dr. Sexy MD, and it sort of becomes an ongoing joke. So that's just something fun that I didn't realize that it came up in this episode, but I did think it was funny given the overarching sort of meta narrative. And the point of uh, the editor making, like, oh, all people want is this silly, like, romance or whatever. And then it just sort of keeps coming up as a a talking point for Dean, which I think is interesting. And what I wanted (laughs) to end the episode on is the line from Chuck talking about how Sam and Dean, like, you know, I get it. It's always nice to hear from the fans. But for your own good, I strongly suggest you get a life. And I felt that in my soul. (laughs) I'm really sorry if you wanted to end the episode on that because we're not going to. Oh, okay. Did you just have a thought? I don't know. Do you have a thought about what my PSA of the day is going to be? Oh, fuck me. Okay. No, I didn't. Uh, I don't have a guess for your PSA. I'm not going to lie. I I have no idea what it's going to be. So this week, I think I'm going to do something like super duper relevant to the episode. Unlike usual. Unlike unlike (laughs) usual. Sometimes I'm grasping at straws, but I think this one actually really solidly ties in. Mm -hmm. It's about being toxic in fan communities. If you're going to comment something that's like needlessly negative or needlessly mean or needlessly toxic, go outside and touch some grass. Like, (laughs) step away from your computer. Fan spaces are meant to be places where you can celebrate your favorite TV show or book or movie. If it's not your cup of tea, step away. Okay, so with your PSA done and dusted, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. So, Jamie, how would you rate this episode, The Monster at the End of This Book, out of five? Okay, I think I'm going to start with like a little bit of a a discussion about my rating. Because I am quickly realizing that they are wildly inconsistent season to season. So, (laughs) here's a nice helpful disclaimer. Only compare ratings within seasons. A season one four is not equivalent to... A season 4-4. Four, four. Mm. A season 1-4 is probably like a season 4-3. Depending yeah. on the rest of the quality of the season, like they are getting directly compared to the episodes that are immediately preceding it. Like everything is relative. Mm-hmm. So like if I gave your favorite episode this season like a 3-3.5, three, three I am not comparing it to like a 3-3.5 three, three in season 1. I'm comparing it to a 3-3.5 three, three in season 4. I also just want to rewrite the entirety of season one and two because (laughs) I realized that like I really didn't have my rating system sorted out in that first season and I had no idea what I was giving what and there are episodes that I rated far too highly and also episodes that I was probably a little mean to at the end of Crooky Era we'll go back and we'll do an overall review we'll do a top five beatdown you know that Try Guys series with Eugene where yeah. he's the rank king yeah. and like at the end he's like, I'm, I'm right, right, you're, you're wrong. wrong, shut up. 
We'll do one of those, but it'll be Jamie's final ranking of the Kripke era. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. can go back through and you can revise anything. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do season by season. Season by season. Rank every single episode in the season in order and we'll like publish like all of the associated, mm-hmm. like we'll make infographics. Oh my goodness. Like we'll go through my whole spreadsheet of your rankings. Yeah. I'll close ranks as they call yes. it in that Try Guys <laughs> video. With that in mind, I think I'm going to give this episode, I'm going to give it four and a half stars. Dang. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I was having. It's a, it's a strong episode. I was vibing the entire episode. I was, I was having a great time. I really like Chuck. Like. Yeah, me too. Obviously, I don't know what happens later on down the track, but at this point, as an, as a character introduction, I really enjoyed it. We got Chuck. We got Cass. We got Lilith. Which we haven't seen Lilith in, in a, a while. Minute, yeah. You know who else we have? I want to see Joe and Ellen again. I am missing Joe and Ellen. We have not seen Joe and Ellen since fucking season two. I we need like a type like a countdown. Like, mm. like we need Days to be like, without Joe and Ellen. <laughs> like, the number is too high. That yes. that is all I will say. The number since we of days since we've seen Joe and Ellen is too high. Mm-hmm. But we get a lot of like I I really like Cass. I really like Zachariah. We get Zachariah again in this episode. I like him. Mm-hmm. So it was like it was very fun. It was very meta. I think cohesively from a storyline point of view, it's really good. I think like the lighting and cinematography was really really strong as well. Mm-hmm. And like I know you said like oh my god I love the cinematography and on the head of a pin. Yeah. Personally, I think the cinematography here was actually stronger. I'll take it. And like the lighting significance was actually stronger here. The, this one felt more purposeful. This one actually made me think about the lighting choices they were making. As a narrative decision. As a narrative decision. So, like, that's, for me, where I'm, that's how I'm thinking of it in my brain. So, like, yeah, I think this is the strongest rating I've given an episode since Bad Day at Black Rock. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. I was vibing. It was a good episode of Supernatural. And not just by Supernatural standards. It was a good episode of TV, and I don't like that. <laughs> I, I that don't is like the that. nicest thing you have said yeah. in the like what eighteen months we've been doing yeah. this podcast. Obviously, like here's the other thing. Like the other episode that I really liked, Bad Day of Black Rock, which was all about like the intricacies within mm-hmm. the plot line, mm-hmm. which was all about how like one thing over here that was a curse for them was a blessing for them, and then like blessings and curses all got muddled yeah. up, and then something that was originally a blessing become a curse, and like all of that sort of significance. This is the exact same sort of. Shit. And yeah. I, I really enjoy that. I really like it. I also, like, my favourite show is Leverage, where, like, everything is significant. I want to be very clear, though, that I still don't like Supernatural and this is not a sign of the brain worms. <laughs> <laughs> so, next week's episode is called Jump the Shark. Do you have any thoughts, feelings, fears, hopes, dreams, predictions? Okay, well, so to jump the shark, basically, like, as a... Common... To jump to conclusions. Yeah, to jump yeah. to conclusions, to jump into a situation without getting all the relevant information and sort of to jump the gun is yeah. like it's, it's it's all around the similar thing so i have a feeling that i don't know like maybe sam's gonna now go after lilith like he's he's sort of worked out that lilith is running mm. which we didn't even talk about oh my god yeah <laughs> lilith is running okay well next week's episode is what i think it's gonna be then we get to discuss it then anyway but if, if Lilith is running, if Sam is convinced that Lilith is running and he's now worked out in his big old brain of his that all he needs is more demon blood to have enough power to be able to defeat Lilith, I reckon that he's going to go off half-cocked to try and kill Lilith. Even in this episode, we get the line from Dean where he says, it frustrates me when you says such reckless things. And Sam says, it frustrates me when you'd rather hide than fight. 
Dean makes the point. It's not hiding. It's being smart. It's picking your battles. And I think that... It's being Bobby coded versus John coded. 100,000%. Yes. And that concept of like Dean seeing Bobby versus Sam seeing John, that is something that's actually going to come up, particularly in an episode in season six. That's a fun tool for later. It is. It is. Um, as a fun little note, we're actually going to be joined by a special guest next week as well. We have KJ, our wonderful friend from over on Supernatural Opinions, and also Wayward Parents is going to come and join us for that one. We're super pumped. And very last thing before we do our final wrap up, my new question that I've remembered that I said I would do at the start of season four. Do you think Cass will be in next week's episode? Yes. Yes? I think Cass will be in next week's episode. Okay. Because otherwise, why would KJ want to be in our podcast for the episode? <laughs> I feel like she'll want to discuss Cass at least a little bit. So, okay. like, why would she choose an episode that Cass isn't in? You're right. There is no other reason KJ would want to hang out with us. No. At all. Only because of Cass. That's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Cool. So, that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully, you had as much fun listening as we had chatting. If you have any thoughts or feelings or anything else that you might want to share with us if you just want to have a chat about this episode or any of the ones previously or I suppose with me any of the ones mm-hmm. coming up feel free to hit us up on any of our social medias all of the links are in the descriptions below and if you're looking for potential topics of conversation some might include do you think in the six months in mystery spot when Dean was dead that Sam was drinking demon blood mm, I think that's actually a really good question Oh, do you know what? What was your favourite line from this episode? Because I think there are some great comedic lines. One we didn't even mention is the whole back and forth about the fiery throes of demonic passion. We didn't mention the you look terrible. Yeah, that's because I just got hit by a minivan. Chuck, there are so many good lines. Just send Beth your favourite gift from this episode. Yes. Oh, please. Or even Jamie. You've seen it now. It's not a spoiler. Yeah, I've seen it now. It's not a spoiler. Also, do we get any other lighting choices later on down the track? That would support my theory that Lou is specifically cast coded now mm-hmm. and that white is like heaven coded. Send me your lighting meta analysis. And one thing that I noticed this episode that I'd never picked up on before was that after the tarp was described as yeah. flapping like in the breeze like a wing of a crow. For some reason, I thought it was going to be black. Like I, I thought, thought it was going to be I'd black like tarp. And I was like... I thought that too. And do you know what? This kind of ties into what you were saying about what Chuck chooses to include when he's writing. Because if you notice, when Dean is driving with the tarp flapping, There's it's not little... black, but there is a crow and, and you hear it. Yeah. You hear the crow. Yeah. So I wonder if that is like a misinterpretation of the like vision kind of yeah. thing. Like if it's just a detail that seeped in. I just thought that was cool. And I'm wondering on that, did you think that Chuck was God? based on this episode is that an argument that back in whenever this was released you would have made yes or no because it was fanon at the time we didn't know hot takes on do you think chuck was or wasn't god at this point so my theory is that he is god oh wow that's a i know damn psychic jamie's really at it today (laughs) anyway i think that just about does it so like we said feel free to hit us up we'd be more than happy to have a chat and hopefully we have you back next week with kj for jump the shark Bye. bye